We're going to look at an Old Testament story here this morning. It's actually a story that's kind of sad. Um, it's kind of a sad story of a person's life. But as I, as I read through, through 1 Samuel and this story, there's something in this story that I think reveals something about God's heart to us, but it also reveals something about our own hearts. Um, so 1 Samuel 15 is where we're going to pick up the story of Saul. And I'm sure most of you are familiar with Saul, the first king of Israel. His story picks up in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, and it goes through uh, chapter 17, I believe. And we all know, it seems like we, the, all the, the terrible things he did are the things that we remember, um, and it seems like there's quite a few of those. Um, but there were also some really big highlight times in Saul's life. Um, but what I, want, what I want us to do today is I want to draw our attention to something about Saul's actions. And we'll look at it in, verse, in chapter 15 because that's kind of right in the center. Um, but there's, there's, there's patterns in his life, his actions, that reveal something about his heart. And I think the same is true for each one of us. The, the way we live, the actions um, that we produce, the words that come out of our mouths, they reveal something about our hearts. So chapter 15 picks up kind of in the middle of his, his reign. But I'm going to go back while you're, you can stay in chapter 15 if you want. And then I'm going to go back to chapter 13. This kind of gives us a context this is earlier on in Saul's um, ministry, but I want you to see if you can pick up a pattern in his life. I'll read these verses in here, and then we'll go to chapter 15. Chapter 13, verse... Um, let me see which verse I wanted. Verse 11. Okay, so let me give you just a, a context here. The Philistines have been gathering against the children of Israel... Samuel tells Saul to go down to Gilgal and to wait for him, and he's supposed to wait for seven days. And then Samuel would come and offer a sacrifice, and then they could go into battle, a sacrifice um, for a blessing on their, on their efforts. Saul, Samuel didn't come at exactly seven days, so Saul takes matters into his own hands, and he presents the offering instead of Samuel. And as soon as he does that, Samuel shows up. And Samuel said, what have you done? And here's the patterns. And Sam, Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me and at Gilgal, and I have sought favor, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now, we'll go over to chapter 15. I'm going to read down through verse 25, I think. 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek, what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, 
ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telmain, 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go and depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. The Kenites were actually descendants of Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and that's why they had received, they had treated the Israelites with kindness, and that's why their lives were spared. Verse 7, and then Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless was devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early the next morning to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Samuel came to Carmel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the, blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you, were little in, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you to be king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Sam, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission to which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil and the sheep and the oxen and the best of the things devoted to destruction and to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as, the iniqui is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord your, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin, and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. 
we're just going to stop there. The rest of the chapter continues on with a dialogue between Samuel and Saul, and we'll touch on a little bit of it um, later on. Now, that's a pretty, I don't know, that's a bleak account. I don't, I, I don't, it's not very pleasant reading, actually. But as I, as I read that, <coughs> what, um, what, what struck me is, I mean, if you just casually read over that, doesn't it seem like God's a little extreme? I mean, seriously, you're going to, He wants Him to utterly dis- destroy all the people, all the Amalekites, including the children, all the cattle, all the sheep, everything, everything is to be destroyed. And so I, I wrestled with that a little bit, um, actually quite a bit, because I, it's, that's hard to wrap my mind around. So I, so I just did, did, some, did some research, did some studying, and I don't know that it even answers all of those questions. But let me just walk through the story with you here, and then um, I want to come back to Saul. And if I'm honest, I see myself in some of Saul's actions, in some of the ways that he responded, in those patterns that I talked about. So, just walking through the story, I already mentioned that in ver- the first three verses are God's command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. Now, if you go back, you can read the account in Exodus 17, what the Amalekites did. They were the first people to attack the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt, and what they did is they came up behind the children of Israel, and they attacked the weak, the vulnerable, those that were lagging behind, the elderly, the, the ones who couldn't keep up. And perhaps that story tells us a little bit of something about God's heart for the vulnerable and the weak among us. But then the children of Israel readied themselves for battle, and they went out into battle against them. And it's the story, it's the battle where Moses stands on top of the hill, and every time his hands are lifted, his hands are raised towards heaven, that the children of Israel are victorious. As soon as he lowers their hands, they begin to be defeated. And so Aaron and Hur come on either side, and they prop up his hands, and the children of Israel prevail. And then he makes a proclamation about how the children of Israel are going to be fighting against the Amalekites for generations and generation. And then he picks up again in Deuteronomy chapter 25 about the Amalekites. And he says this about them, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and you shall not forget. So Saul is now being tasked to fulfill what had been prophesied or what had been proclaimed in Deuteronomy 25. And I don't know, is this idea of complete destruction, it's the devote to destruction, it actually means to completely turn over to God. It's a, it's a term of judgment. It's God's judgment on the people of Amalek. And it's, it's hard to wrestle with the judgment of God and how harsh and cruel it seems here. But perhaps it's a picture of how we are to blot out sin from our lives, how ruthless we are to be when we, are to, when we destroy the sin that infects our own life. And when we start to compromise and we start to 
compromise with the sin in our lives, what that does to us. So the children of Israel, Saul takes them and they go down and they fight. Verses 4 to 6. Um, and they, they destroy, they're victorious, they destroy the Amalekites. And then he says in verse, um, in verse 8, And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and Saul and the people, in verse 9, they spared Agag and the best of all the sheep and, and all that stuff. Now, if you stop and think about it a little bit, it actually kind of makes sense when you, when you think about why the people would, why they would spare all of those people and why they would spare Agag. And I'll touch on a little bit more later, but the sparing of Agag revealed something very deep in Saul's, a lot of pride, if you will, in Saul's heart. And the sparing of the best of the sheep and the oxen, the fattened calves and the lambs. And I think it says that they spared them so that they could come and they could sacrifice them. So what's the difference if they sacrifice them, if they kill them all in the land of the Amalekites? Or what's the difference if they bring them over here to Gilgal and they sacrifice them to God here? Does it matter? Well, apparently it does. Why, why is God so passionate about obedience. Why does God, why does obedience inspire so much joy in God and disobedience, how it breaks God's heart? And I'll touch on that a little bit more later as well. Then in verse 10 and 11, we hear God's response and Samuel's response to sin. And notice how it differs from, um, from, from Saul's. And it says in verse 10 that the, God, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and God said this, I regret that I have made Saul king. Did God make a mistake? That he regretted what he had done? Some translations actually use the word repent. God repented that he had put placed Saul as king. John Piper says it this way, it means, that God ex- it means that God expresses a different attitude about something than he had expressed before. His changes and his dealings with people according to his sovereign purposes. Now, if you look if back in chapter 13 again, God had already told um, Saul that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. And I think chapter 15, God is giving Saul a second chance. And so God, and, and Saul is once again disobedient. He does not follow through on what God asks of him. And so God says, all right, that's it, no more. But Samuel's response kind of catches my attention. It says he was angry. So who was he angry at? What was he angry about? Was he mad at Saul? Was he mad at God? And he says that he cried all night long. Chapter 16, verse 1, God says this to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? I think Samuel's heart was broken over the fact that Saul was so disobedient to God and did not follow through, and that his, the kingship would be taken from him. I think Saul, Samuel's heart was broken over the sin of another person. Get a person like that in your life. We need those people in our lives. And then Samuel comes and he confronts Paul. And that starts in verse, or Saul, I'm sorry. 
In verse 6, 12, it starts where Samuel comes and he meets Saul. But you notice Saul's not there because he's going to Carmel first. And then he comes. And the first thing, as soon as Saul sees Samuel, Samuel doesn't even have a chance to say a word. Do you see that? Do you catch that? As soon as Saul sees him, he says, Hey, look, I have done exactly what you told me to do. I've done everything you told me to do. That's in verse 13. It's like, sometimes when, when all we can do is talk, it just reveals what we're trying to hide, doesn't it? It's, he, he doesn't even give Samuel a chance to say anything. Anyway, but then the other thought I have with that is, was Saul so blinded by his sin that he couldn't even see it anymore? It shows up later on in his life as well. Um, when he says, this is down in verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, he says to Samuel, I have gone on the mission to which the Lord sent me. But I, then he says, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalekite. I wonder, was he so blinded that he couldn't even see his own disobedience? Anyway, so Samuel confronts him, and we know how, we read down through there, you heard how that went, and Samuel's response to him. And after this occasion, after verse or chapter 15, Saul, Samuel's, or, I keep getting their names mixed up. So Saul's life just goes downhill. Did you ever notice that? It, it just get, it gets worse and worse. It's where he starts, jealousy just takes, takes over in his life and he starts, he throws the spear, tries to kill David, and on and on and on it goes. But all of this, what happened in chapter 13, what happened here, led to Saul's demise, and it was simply this. It was disobedience. So why is, why is Saul's disobedience such a big deal? Why, why, why was it such a big deal? It seems, so he was supposed to go to completely annihilate them, and he brings back the king. Everything else he followed through on. Then you look at someone like David. I mean, David did awful stuff. And I'm like, this seems so mild. This seems so mild in comparison. Disobedience to what God commands us reveals a belief that God does not know what is best. It declares that I know better than God, that He doesn't know what best is best for me, and it, it shows, it reveals a lack of trust in God. And He goes on and goes as far as to say it's as and this is a familiar verse. This one gets pulled out a lot. Verse 23, it says, rebellion of the sin of divination or witchcraft in other translations. Um, simply seeking a different way to know what, what to do that ignores or bypasses the word of God. And he also uses the word idolatry. So if it's true that Saul's actions and my actions reveal something about my heart. What can I learn? What can we learn about what was going on deeper under the surface in Paul's or Saul's heart? What caused, what caused Saul to disobey? What causes you to disobey? Or maybe you don't. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, what, what caused Saul to dis, be disobedient? Pride, fear, all of that stuff. Jealousy, 
But how about even deeper than that? So see, see what you think about this. I, I was thinking about this, and I, I'm going to throw it out to you and see, see if you think, agree with this or not. What, what's at the root of pride? What does pride come out of? Because, I mean, I think it's pretty evident that pride became a pretty big deal in Saul's life. But where does that, what does that spring out of? I would suggest that perhaps it springs out of a deep sense of insecurity. Let me, let me try to explain what I mean. Insecurity is something that I'm sure we all have. All of us deal with insecurities in our lives. I know I do. But insecurities, when we, we have insecurities in our lives that are not touched by the hand of God, it turns into something else. And let me, let, let's look at Saul's life and, and see, if you, see if you agree with me on that. See what you think. Let me say this yet first. Insecurity can present itself as humility. Do you ever notice how it does that? Insecurity can be someone who will hold back and just not be, just kind of be disengaged because they don't want to be up front. They don't want to make, draw attention to themselves. And it can be disguised. It can actually be presented as humility instead of um, the insecurity that it is. They can look almost identical. Humility and insecurity can look almost identical on the surface. But what's beneath the surface? What's really deep down in? We all have them. We all have insecurities. It's just whether or not we live out of those insecurities that we have. Was Saul insecure? I would suggest to you that he was. And I don't know, different translations will, will say, read verse 17 differently. He says, though you are, Samuel says this to Saul, though you are little in your own eyes, um, some translations would say, though you were little in your own eyes, referring back in chapter 9 when Saul came, or Samuel came to anoint Saul, Saul pushed back. He was like, I am the least of the least of the least of these guys, not me. And so he, he was met with resistance. And then when it was time to present him to the people as their king, he was nowhere to be found. Do you remember that part of the story in chapter 10? Saul is hiding in the luggage because he does not want to step into the role that God's calling him into. And so I would, it seems to me that that insecurity led Saul to do some pretty drastic things in his life. So what does insecurity do? What did it do in Saul's life and what can it do when it's not dealt with in our own lives? They cause us to hide our true selves. Insecurity can cause us to hide who we truly are meant to be and it actually turns the focus in on ourselves. I see a lot of self in, in Saul and I often see a lot of self in me. The first thing I see how it plays out in Saul's life is it self-inflates. So when I'm feeling insecure about myself like Saul was, then I have to do something to make myself look more important. I have to do something to make myself needed where I'm wanted. I have to do something like that. <clears throat> and so Saul <clears throat> spares Agag. And I don't think he spared Agag out of an act of compassion. 
There is no greater, um, greater display of victory than have your opposing king, the king that you just defeated, subject at your table, completely dependent on you for everything that he needs to survive. And this was, this was Saul's trophy. You guys go out and you shoot a monster buck. What do you do? You're going to hang it on the wall. This is your trophy. This was Saul's trophy. I'm not comparing hanging your buck on the wall, by the way, to this. But um, this was a way of Saul inflating himself and, and turning the focus on him because he had to make up for something that was lacking deep in his heart that security that comes from God, so he had to make himself look good in the eyes of people instead. And he does it again, you see it in verse 12. I had, this struck me, I had not noticed this before. Verse 12 says, Saul went to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And he turned and then he went to Gilgal. So his focus was turned on inflating his own sense of worth and his own sense of value. This monument that he built, I would say, is the ultimate act of pride, and it leads, or is a deep sense of pride, and it needs to... Pre- I'm sorry, I can't even read my own notes here. The ultimate act of pride is that insecure, insecurities that have not been touched by God can lead to a deep sense of pride and the need to present a false self. So Saul was actually presenting to the people something about himself that was not real because he had to put on a good front. The second thing it does, it self-protects. And here's something that you notice if you follow along in chapter 13 and in here, when Saul is confronted with his sin, what does he do? He immediately deflects the blame. He shifts the blame to someone else. He says in verse 15, he says that they brought the best of the sheep and the cattle. It wasn't him. He, he separates himself from that. But then he reinserts himself in, in it and says that we devoted to, the, to destruction everything else. Do you notice how he disassociates himself from the sin, but he associates himself with the part that was actually, that where they actually did obey on. So they, there was partial obedience there. So there's this shifting of blame, and that, I believe, comes straight out of someone who's insecure, and it seeks the approval over, of others over the obedience of God. There's several times when Saul mentions that he did this out of the fear of the people. So how he looked in other people's eyes was the most important, was more important to thing to him than it was to obey God. And this one seems maybe a little more, ob- I don't know, um, obscure, but I think it's really important. It leads to self-focused worship. It leads to, insecurity can lead to self, and I'm talking, when I talk in insecurity, because I've said we all have them, but I'm talking insecurities that we have not, never brought to the foot of the cross. The insecurities that, that are ruling and controlling our actions and our words You'll notice, I want to go refer back to chapter 13 again, the self-focused worship. So Saul, um, because of the, the people were starting to scatter, Saul, Samuel wasn't there. He said, I forced myself and I offered to the Lord. It's like, I didn't want to do it, but I just, I, I had to do it. 
<clears throat> and then the other thing is here, Saul and the people bring back the best of all the cattle and all the stuff that they would sacrifice. They bring that back to sacrifice to God. Now, no, just on the surface, that looks like it, can, it makes sense. But that worship, that act of worship in bringing the stuff from the Amalekites over, it meant that they benefited from the worship because whatever was sacrificed, they would eat from. But it also meant that they could build their own wealth. Even if they sacrificed all those animals, that meant all the best of what they had, they didn't need to bring and offer to God because they could offer what they had brought in disobedience from the Amalekites. So it was really, their worship was really about themselves. It was not about God who was ultimately. I would say this, that the, the sacrifice, the burnt offerings, and why God says that he delights more in obedience than in burnt offerings, is the burnt offerings that they had came back to present to God were simply a smokescreen of what was really going on in their hearts. Now, <clears throat> that makes me ask myself, when we come to worship, is my act of worship this morning, at home tomorrow, is it a smokescreen? Is it to present something to the people around me so that they see? Is it true worship in spirit and in truth? Or is there something else? <clears throat> Am I the same person this morning as I was yesterday morning at home? Does fear of people drive my words and my actions? Is my worship focused on myself or is it focused on God? And then the last one is it leads to shallow repentance. At the end of chapter 15, it seems as though Saul comes to a place where he repents. And he says, he says this, I have sinned, but, but catch this, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. So that even his repentance was conditional. He wanted to Saul, Samuel to come back with him and honor him so that his position as king in front of the people would not be lost, so that they would still respect him. So all of that, I believe, flows out of a heart that is incredibly insecure in who he was and who God had created him to be and the call that God had placed on his life. If insecurity is the awareness of one's brokenness that leads to hiding and self-protection, then humility is what lives within awareness of one's brokenness. But that awareness leads to vulnerability and an increased dependence on God, not on self. There's no need or reason. And we don't have time to look through all of um, the different ways that humility is expressed. But what I wanted to close with is how do I move how does my heart move from living in insecurity to a place where I can live freely and uninhibited in humility? 
they can look so much alike, and yet underneath they are so completely different. Let me just let me just give you four ways that I see from here that we can move from insecurity to humility. Is we need to we need a Samuel in our lives. I can't I can't begin to tell you how important it is for us to have a person like Samuel. Have you ever had someone who's stayed up weeping and praying and crying over your rejection of God or your sin? Do you have someone in your life that cares that deeply about you? And then the other, the flip side of that is perhaps that should be the the check in our hearts before we go talk to someone, before we confront someone like Samuel had had to the Saul, is do I care enough about that person to weep and pray for them all night? Do I care that deeply about? So we need, we need to be that person sometimes, but we all need a Samuel in our lives. And we need to have true worship, personally and corporately, not one that is focused on performance, not one that is conscious and focused on what the person around me is thinking. How different would your worship here this morning, on a Sunday morning, during praise and worship, would your worship look different if you wouldn't have to worry about what anyone else around you is thinking? Would it look different? Sometimes mine would, I think. Would it, would you, where, where, where does that tell, what does that tell me about where my heart is in my worship? Thirdly, sit alone with God. I can't stress that enough, and you've probably heard, probably tired of me saying it, but sitting alone with God, there's nothing that reveals more about what's going on in my heart than simply sitting alone with God and letting God love me. That's so, so powerful. And I believe all of that actually ends up leading to true repentance, not repentance the way Saul repented, where it was conditional, it was about lifting himself up in the end, but true repentance that sets us free. Repentance used to be something that scared me. It was scary because, man, what are people going to think? I'm going to be exposed. People are going to know all this. Listen, repentance is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing because it brings freedom. True repentance brings freedom, and it is a thing of absolute beauty. So God's heart delights in obedience. Disappointment or disobedience, and where that comes from, what that says about myself, what that says, what I believe about God, is heartbreaking to Him. But what God calls us to is to live in humble awareness of our brokenness in a way that leads to a greater dependence on God. Would you stand with me for prayer? The worship team, you have another song? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, as we look at stories like this in the Old Testament, for sure the life of Saul, 